With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Today's show is made possible by Florence Marine X. FlorenceMarineX.com for equipment that doesn't make it to your hands unless it's performed in the harshest environments on the planet. Everything from board shorts to wetsuits to ultraviolet protected rash guards. They now have outerwear that's amazing. Everything is North Shore tested, validated by John himself and other Florence test pilots across the North Shore, which clearly is one of the most dynamic and intense environments on earth for testing the exact gear and equipment that you and I need. So go to FlorenceMarineX.com for whatever you need to thrive in any condition and adapt to any environment. FlorenceMarineX.com. Enjoy. RealWaterSports.com. We love talking about and examining surfboards, and that's why we're in great company with Real Water Sports. They are a full-service retailer, but the backbone of their business, and I think their greatest passion, I would argue, is boards. They have a 1,500-board inventory, and that's in addition to the foil boards and kite boards and equipment that they carry. And they've spent years and years designing video reviews, and now they have this series with Brett Barley that we've been talking about. But all of that, the whole focus of it all, is to dissect construction and design to help us, to help you understand more about surfboards. Simple as that. So for your next purchase, or just to peruse and edify yourself for a future potential purchase, go to realwatersports.com. Click around, watch some videos, check it all out. These are great partners of the show. We appreciate them. So, realwatersports.com. Enjoy.
I was so ashamed and just so the, the amount of guilt and the amount of shit like that was flooding back into my brain after a couple weeks and a month, you know, where I'm like staying home, but I'm like getting sober and I'm like realizing who I am. And I might add at this time, my father had passed, which really sent me down a bad path. I was losing my father's home that he had passed away and he owed like $500,000 on. I don't have a job. I had like the money that I was getting from my roommate. I was like buying a tent, fixing up a bicycle, getting sleeping bags because I was going to be homeless. I knew where I was going to go into this, the, the mount, this mountainy area kind of in SoCal. It was a fucking heavy bottom, you know, and so... generation San Franciscan C.J. Nelson stood up on his very first wave at Capitola in Santa Cruz at the age of four. It also marked a third generation of surfers in the Nelson family. There's actually a photo on his website of uh, C.J.'s dad at the age of three on a 13-foot Tom Blake with his father, C.J.'s grandfather, in Newport Beach back in the 50s. So early days and pioneers of California surf culture. And it all seemed to be encoded in CJ's DNA because from the earliest published images and photos of him, he possessed an effortless style and incomparable hang time on the tip. And CJ's dad's familiarity with the entire California coast and its shapers ensured that CJ from a very young age was surfing the state's finest point breaks and had access to a variety of shapers and styles of shaping in different cultural enclaves like San Clemente's Israel Paskowitz and Herbie Fletcher, Seal Beach's Rich Harbor, and then all the way back home in Northern California in Santa Cruz with Michelle Junod and Bob Pearson. These distinct and divergent shaping designs and philosophies can all be found to some degree of influence in C.J. Nelson's surfboard designs today. C.J. is nearly equally passionate about skating, cycling, and more recently running, and his story is one of constant movement, often in big leaps forward, always exploring the fringe of what his own physical capabilities are, which is something that we certainly hear a lot about from these high-level pro surfers, But what we almost never see is the characteristic that's dominated CJ's life for the past decade, which is a brutally honest introspection, vulnerability, and unbelievable candor in sharing all of it, all of what he's going through. So over his 20 plus year pro surf career, he's launched successful brands. He's won big events like the Duct Tape Invitational and Mexi Log Fest. And then I found him at his Oceanside headquarters for his soft top brand, Crime. So my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I'm really thrilled and honored to be able to share this conversation with CJ Nelson. I hope you enjoy it.
All right, CJ Nelson, welcome. This is overdue. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I'm honored. I appreciate that. I'm a fan. I appreciate that. There were so many years where I had to explain to the person what a podcast was before we started our conversation. (laughs) It makes it a little bit harder. Yeah. I'm I'm always on podcasts constantly. What do you listen to? Like outside of the surf world? Just a lot of... uh, relationship stuff um like mark groves and you know a a big fan of andrew huberman and just like mainly relationship like self-help you know stuff like that what's your fascination or interest in that or is that a temporary interest or no you know it's funny when 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 covid started i was uh I I was like, okay, this is like a real opportunity to lean into um, my physical health and just see what, because I had a little bit more time than than normal. So I was like, oh, let's see what I can get out of my body. And so I just picked up running. And like, I was like, I'm just going to get six miles a day done. Whether I got to crawl, walk, cry, laugh, whatever. And so I, I... did it I've been doing it now for two years straight and so no matter what I pretty much knock it out and during that time I was like what am I gonna do like I'm not gonna listen to music you know like so I started listening to podcasts um and then it it it's amazing what it's done for me it's like I learned so much just by default like different I'm listening to stuff about um minimalism and and relationships and leadership and you know um just all sorts of stuff and so it's it it really resonated with me and I started analyzing like my physical health obviously got better I lost weight I felt like way better about everything my surfing got better everything was like elevating but my mental health was like going places it had never gone it actually made me get out of it. It pushed me over getting out of my last relationship. Pushed me over the edge. Just like kind of like once you once you go down that path and you start having all these realizations about yourself and like clearly knowing things, it's like you like things have to evolve. And so that shit has evolved me like right out of who I was three years ago, and it's been fucking wild. Hmm. Yeah. So. I have a great amount of respect for podcasts, people that share information. I think it's fucking super important to society. Um, was there something going on, not to go straight into the deep end, but was there something going on three years ago that was particularly uh, problematic in your life? Or was it just well, that you know, COVID- I, got, I got sober. This will be 10 years sober. Yeah. And when I got sober, I got into a relationship pretty much immediately which wasn't fair to myself or the person I was with because I didn't really know who I was. I'd been basically a fucking, you know, degenerate, very destructive party animal for since I was 16, and I got sober at 36. So I didn't know who I was, and, you know, I, I didn't know... I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't know what to do with money. I was just like lost you know lost my dad and that's what that's what got me sober but long story short 
I just kind of like have been evolving since then as if it would have never, like as if you would have just removed a slice out of my life. And I'm like mentally where I, where I was emotionally when I was 16 when I got sober. You know, like regaining my innocence and like learning what to do with it and like building a life the way I envisioned it as a child. And so it's been an evolution um, up until this point. And, you know, I got sober, I got clear, I started my businesses, I salvaged my surfing career and my relationships and made my apologies and, you know, forgave myself um, for the things that I am not proud of. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, well, you know, what if, you know, some of my heroes in surfing that don't surf anymore, when they like gave it up, what if they actually went to the gym instead, instead of giving it up, what would they look like now? And so that always has been going through my head because I feel like I wasted a lot of time. And so I was like, okay, like, I love to surf, and how much I love it, I will, like, rub my face in the dirt and weep and bleed and cry. And I'm, I train every day, and I fucking hate it, and I do it by myself. And I, like, because it's all for that, you know. It's all for a donation to the thing I love the most, you know. And mm -hmm. so three years ago, I was like, well, the opportunities landed in my lap. Like, I'm going to fucking do it. So many people um, took that time to uh, to be more leisurely. It's funny, you know, like drink the, the relationship I was in, it was so polarizing, you know, after when I ended up getting out of that relationship. But I tell people, like, when COVID, we're, me and her were so different, but when COVID started, like, I bought running shoes. Mm. She bought cigarettes. Right. And I know what you mean. Like so many people were like, but it was hard. You know, I don't blame anybody. Well, for everybody's their on reaction. a different. Everybody's on a different part of their journey. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I'm, yeah. So. Uh, sit tight. I'm gonna make one adjustment. Sure. It's so. What's funny about that is I would have thought, and just from hearing you talk or kind of tracking you over the years, like I would have thought that sobriety was that flashpoint of course and then everything else is just kind of after that but it's interesting to hear you say three years ago was a different flashpoint and yeah. that there you know it's good to hear that there are these kind of markers along the way where you have to then opt in again and do additional work and then of course the benefit is you reach new heights and there is all this new personal growth and development and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. It doesn't just change with sobriety, obviously. No, I, and in fact, like, I really think that, that when I made the decision to get sober, you know, it's a long, it's, it's a long emotional story of how it happened, but that was easy. Oh, really? Because it was so, like, I quit smoking, quit drinking, quit doing drugs, all in one second, one morning after some prayer and stuff, but and I never and I never went to a meeting. I never talked to anybody. I just quit, mm. and uh, that was pretty. It was a lot of mental anguish leading up to that, which was difficult to consider it and not do it, and know that I needed it and not do it. That was hard, but once I made the decision, it was easy. 
what I've done in the last two and a half years with my health and this running and stuff, that's the hardest thing I've ever done. Totally. Um, committing to six miles a day is a big commitment right yeah. out of the gates. <laughs> it, it, well, well, did you do like six miles straight? You do three well, miles no, in the like, morning? Dude, three I mean, I couldn't run from here to my car. Okay. When I started, I would walk and then I would, you know, I would walk and then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to run like t- six houses. And I'd run six houses and then I'd like walk and then I'd, I just built and built and built, you know. But it was a six mile. But I was going to get it done. And it was six miles in one session. Oh, yeah. Let's say. Gotcha. Yeah, just this loop that I do up through Fire Mountain that I've, I think I've like worn a trench in the concrete doing it. It feels like I've just, I know where every pebble is, every crack. It's like the most monotonous fucking horrific thing ever you brought up sobriety and we'll probably come back to this kind of throughout as we go through your timeline yeah um people think that the vice alcohol whatever drugs whatever it is uh is serving them in some way yeah you know like oh man i'm more i'm more uh talkative or more fun at a party or whatever it is or this makes just life feel better at what point do you identify that it's no longer serving you? You said, this is not who I am. So at a point it was who you were and it was serving you probably, but how do you identify for anybody who's listening who might be in the throes of it? Like, how do you identify this thing is no longer serving me? This isn't who I am. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I could like visually see it on myself. You know, it was, overweight my priorities had shifted I wasn't surfing my eyes you know there was no like depth and like spark in there it's really interesting after a few months of getting sober and like people would look at me and be like man your eyes really it was like I heard it all the time Mm. you look so alive your eyes man there's something different about you so I don't know you know I'm I think it takes a bottom a real bottom to, to get people out of their situation. You know, I, I see it so much because I do reach out to my community about it because I am here to help anybody who chooses to reach out to me unsolicited, like, come. I would love to speak or talk, you know, write, whatever. I'll tell you my story. So I do it all the time, and I, I, I see a lot of people are where I was as far as like they know that it can't last forever Mm. and the type of dude that i was it's like there was one it was there's two options you stop or you die this wasn't like i'm gonna cut frat boy shit partying like this was real dark punk rock do it by myself do it with anybody drink with homeless drink with friends, drink alone, do drugs, whatever. Like in San Francisco all the time on like psychotic benders and fighting, violence, you know, all the whole thing, gangs, all of it. Yeah. You know, and and I think you know, you you know like there's people who who drink 10 beers a night. That is that ain't healthy, you know? But you're probably not going to end up with a knife in your back, you know? Like, I was doing it all in bar fights and street fights and, like, just, I was going to end up dead. 
you know, and I'm gl- I'm just blessed that I survived that shit. You know, I I don't believe in violence even, and I fought six days a week. <laughs> all my fingers are all crooked. My nose has been broken you know, was it, eight times. I mean, uh, was it self-destruction? Was there something that you were trying to... You know, it's it's weird, the the... Like, what was motivating it? You know, I grew, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I grew up, my dad was a skater and a surfer, and just the people that I looked up to in those groups, obviously, like, guys, like, not to blame anybody for any of my bullshit, you know, but self-destructive punk rock dudes like Archie and Christian and that type of guy, and then in, in skateboarding, it was, you know... Dwayne Peters, you know, uh, like Corey Chrysler, Andy Roy, Jason Jesse, dudes that I would see around Santa Cruz and guys that I'd hang out with in the city skating and stuff. And, and it was like, you know, you're, pu- you're puking all the time, you're getting tattooed, you're fighting. It was like that type of person, you know, that... I wanted to be like a Dwayne Peters, you know? I didn't think I was going to survive. And I, was a, I didn't really want to, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. But I think that, that that was the only... I look back at my life, nothing bad happened to me. My, my father loved me. My mom loves me. Like, I was privileged. Interesting. You know, there was no real reason. My, my mom was an alcoholic. My dad... You know, there's there's could be some DNA stuff there, but I don't have like some like I don't have a reason other than the company, the people I looked up to and the company that I I chose to keep. That's fascinating. It it is because I gave. Really you know the party. It's fun to go to parties when you're in high school, but when you leave and then you're going to parties in San Francisco and then it's like bars and it just turns into this thing and everybody's doing it and that's life. And then some guys are doing it better than other guys and still skating. And you you know, it's, you think that that's right, you know, in the confusion and in the fog, you're like, Oh, that like, I'm a, I'm like the Terminator. I can, I can do it. And I did do it, man. I would drink for four days straight and then go surf in a contest and win. You're right. Without sleeping. Yeah. So there's no consequence. There, was, there wasn't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, I've never considered this before, what you're saying. Like you're modeling your behavior after idols more than it is like an internal drive to do the thing. Um, and then I think, yeah, it becomes ha- habit and there's it's other sad. things it, that it's, kick it's, in. It's, it's sad. I mean... But I see it. I understand what you're talking about. Because I was that. Then yeah. then in hindsight, like I just, I won't say any names, but I just recently have, I've had this like a kid that was like a fan of mine a long time ago. And I know he looked up to me and my surfing and my the way I was. And he started drinking. And he's like, yeah, because CJ does it, it's okay. And so he went down this whole path, got on drugs. Basically, he's a a great surfer, kind of 
fucked his whole shit up, ruined his world, you know? And then when I got sober, I felt a lot of hate coming from him mm. and like some people that he's affiliated with because I feel like because of what I did, it made it not okay now. You know what I mean? And then yeah. just recently, like he had reached out to me about getting sober and, and I had talked to him and tried to encourage him because I think he's a really brilliant guy. And um, he texted me or sent me a message a few months, uh, maybe like six months ago, and I was driving on PCH, and he's like, dude, I've got 12, 12 months sober. Oh, really? Holy cow. Yeah, and I like pulled over and just like wept because like, like I'm saying, looking up to idols that took me down this path, right? Like I was that to him. And then now he's, luckily I, he followed me in there and he, he kind of, mm -hmm. you know, pulled it together and got out of there, you know, and we, we, we become kind of close. And, Good. But it's, it's hard. That's, that stuff. It's hard. We'll, co we'll come back to it. Let's go back to though, um, your upbringing. Grew up in San Francisco. When did you find yourself in Santa Cruz? I yeah, I um, basically I was just skating and being pretty self-destructive. And about halfway through high school, my dad, who was my biggest supporter, I mean, I was only surfing like on the weekends. And I was still winning contests all the time. This was while you were living in San Francisco? Yeah, yeah. And I... Wait, by the way, how old are you? What years were you? I'm 47. Okay. So in mid-80s? Like, no, no, the... Late eighties? Not no, it was not I mean it was like ninety nine it was like ninety two when I left um the Bay Area. So there's like, surf events, longboard events and stuff in oh, San Francisco. Yeah, but I was doing like the US I mean I was doing the um nationals, I was in the NSSA, I was like driving up and down California. Doing it. Gotcha. Right. But when I was home, I wasn't surfing. I was just okay. skating. Gotcha, gotcha. And I was like at a Barcadero or just doing the San Francisco thing and skating Stanford and going down to San Jose and skating and drinking and I was like heavily into the graffiti scene and so I was like out all night every night not going to school and um one night I was out spray painting and I like we were spray painting this like big box truck and there was a cop and he like fl flashed his lights and it was like 3 a.m. I was with my buddy and we ran and had to like hide in the bushes and we were out by on the freeway and I would like ran for all these miles and I had to there was no cell phone so I like found a pay phone and like called my dad and I was like covered in poison oak and just spray paint and just my dad was so pissed you know he's like I'm gonna come get you you know and so he drove, and I was, like, an hour from my house. It was 3 a.m., you know, and I had school the next day. It was just fucking stupid. And But my dad, that, you know, it was, like, a couple days later, he's like, all right. He's like, are you going to be a pro skater? What are you going to do, you know? What are you going to do? Do you want to surf? He's like, let's get the fuck out of here. Let's move to Santa Cruz. Like, you need to surf. Like, you're blowing it. And I'm like, all right. Wow. So he took me out of high school. I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't going anyway, but we left. 
and I moved to the west side of Santa Cruz and uh, right on Walnut by Santa Cruz High. And, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was funny because when I moved there, I I just, like, <laughs> was skate. I just kind of kept skating and not – I didn't surf that much. I, like, started hanging out with Israel Forbes and Brian Burnham and Ron Whaley and, like, all the, the skaters there and skating. I mean, this is a kind of – pivotal and important time in Santa Cruz it was for surf and skate yeah it was big it was like yeah it was it was a good it was a good time in Santa Cruz high was the best skate spot in town at the time so all the everybody was skating there Dustin Zimmerman Matt Fields like the whole the whole crew and it was it was amazing and I had I had the best time but it, I kept being a piece of shit you know so let's lay uh a picture of the land, a picture of the lay of the land, I guess, in yeah. Santa Cruz at the time. I'm sure a lot of listeners do know, but maybe some don't. It was a pretty rough and tumble place. Um, yeah. A lot of drug addiction in that area still to this day, but also a lot of localism and longboarding was not fashionable at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So what was your experience growing up in Santa Cruz? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was really hard, but I got, I kind of got a VIP pass a little bit because I was, in the skate scene. Okay. So if I went out to Pleasure Point or whatever, the guys that would want to fuck with me knew that I was already kind of friends with a lot of people that they either liked or looked up to or whatever, you know? And they knew that I wasn't going to, if they wanted to fight me, I wasn't going to, like, run away, you know? Like, they knew if they started shit with me, we were going to fight. You know, I think... A lot of those guys would rather not, but they, they got a big bark. Yeah. You know what I mean? But anyway, I mean, it was, it was, it was fun. I mean, I grew up at Pleasure Point. I would, I, there wasn't much longboarders out there. Like longboarders were kind of told if you're going to surf here, it's got to be at second peak. Can't, you can't surf first peak. You can't surf sewer peak. Me and Jay Moriarty, and a few other guys were kind of permitted to do it on a few conditions. One would be like if another longboarder paddled over there, you I would have to tell him to go back, you know, and just, you know, pay the piper a little bit, which I didn't mind doing. I mean, you know, how it was, you. you know how it was back then. It was, there was no, there was no way to do it without, either being a part of the localism or severely limited by the localism. Right. There was just no middle ground. Uh, what is your viewpoint on that entire thing now? It's, it's mind-blowing. Does it still have value, though? Or does it just seem so archaic and out of place now? I was talking to... I was... I was talking to a friend about this the other day, Ryan Engel and a couple other friends, because it's so, I mean, when you started surfing back then, you were told, you know, you knew about the investment it was going to be, right? You knew. It's a good point. What you were investing in. And it was fucking a lifelong drag out, sock em up journey. And there was no two ways about it. 
you were nothing in order to be something, you were going to have to pay your, with everything you have, right? And so we were all comfortable standing in that line. That's what we signed up for, right? And like to be the old man out at Sewer Peak with the hood that, got no, that gets nothing but set waves and only on the best swells. To be him is what the, I aspired to be when I was 12. That was my investment. I'm going to be that. So kind of like the way I think about it, and which to me is like Disneyland, mm-hmm. right? So we've all been standing in line for 30 years to get into Disneyland, and 2 million people just got to cut in front of us. Just bought a ticket. And now we have to have lunch with them. That's it. It's yeah. done. Yeah. So what are you going to do? Good good question. <laughs> um it served a really like it in the time and place it served a purpose, you know, and it worked and like you said I think the opting in was the key difference. Nobody just paddled out and got punched out immediately with no warning. Like they've got the warning. They probably took off on a wave. They shouldn't have, they got told to go to the beach. You know, there's all these, there was, there was organization to the localism and the chaos. Um, but it served a purpose. Now it's as much as I, uh, think that it served a purpose. Then the purpose wouldn't work now. It's too crowded. There's too many people who never went through the same rites of passage to even understand what they're opting into that it's, and it's litigious you know, so that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, you'll get sued if you punch somebody basically. So I don't know what the solution is now either. But yeah, it, yeah. It's out I of control, either. you know? I either, yeah. I mean, I don't even think that an empty lineup or a more organized pecking order or whatever, I don't even think that's the thing that I miss the most. I think I just miss having the eye-to-eye respect mm. with the guy sitting next to me. And I know that he's making the same investment that I am. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just that camaraderie yeah. of, like, being a surfer, a real one, not somebody who, like, surfs or, like, oh, I ski four times a year, whatever. Like, when you, when you were a surfer at that point, it was all in. All chips are in, you know? Totally. It's, it was different. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything that can be done. It's just the way, the way it you've is. Ar- you've articulated it well, though. That I agree with you. It was the brotherhood that you're a part of that required a real investment that was part of uh, the joy. Of yeah. It, like you know? I re- I, joy isn't even the right word, but it's part of the draw for yeah. sure. Like when Steve Coletta, the old man at Sewer Peak, would uh, not like gave me my first nod and set wave out there. It's sad that all these people aren't gonna that don't don't understand that and aren't gonna enjoy that and haven't invested in it. You know, it's you 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 see how it is out there. It's just so. There's no nobility in it. There's no Big Wednesday in it. You know what I mean? It's a fucking Barbie doll, gum, candy, pop culture, dumbest 
most ridiculous crap you can dream up. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, it's, it's, man. It's the opposite of Steve Coletta. It's the opposite of Steve Coletta, and Matt Johnson, like the history, the beautiful nobility of men challenging the ocean. You know, it's like, it's just bubblegum Barbie doll bullshit. Uh, and you will never cultivate characters like Steve in the modern environment. And that's yeah. the problem. You know what I mean? Like Steve, the hard, the hardship that Steve went through, um, and some of it is just braving the morning cold year after year after year. That kind of stuff creates real characters. Yeah. And so you're not gonna have those characters anymore. Yes. Or, or or he would be sitting out there and the kid who paddles out next to him, the modern day kid that you're talking about, not only doesn't know who he is, but doesn't even value the character that Steve Coletta is, you know? Yeah, it's never gonna happen. Yeah. It's so crazy. We are, are all of our investments are kind of just like lost, you know? Yeah. But um, the thing is, is like we, those guys, can, all these new people, they can have the van, the sprinter van. They can have the hot girlfriend, all the right clothes, the, the quiver of boards, the Instagram account, the whole shit. They can have all that, but they can't have the surfing. Because you got to work for it. That's what Steve Coletta gets. Yeah. That's what I get. That's what our generation, like the people who came before we get the surfing, y'all can have the rest of the bullshit. Yeah, you know? which is the only thing that matters. It's the only ultimately. thing that really matters when push comes to shove, yeah. you know? The lifestyle thing is whatever. Um, so I know at some point you link up with Bob Pearson up there, but who, yeah. are, who are you getting boards from at that time? I was writing for... Um, yeah, I, I, I rode for Pearson. I got some boards from Harbor for a little bit via Terry Sims helping me out. And then Michelle Juno built me some incredible boards. But I really, le uh, the relationship with Bob Pearson, I kind of went in and out of a little bit, but then went in and stayed there for a long time. Who is Bob Pearson to you? Tell me about him. Amazing, man. You know, he's, I think in my alcoholic, ego-y way that I was back then, I don't think I really appreciated uh, what he did, what he did for me. Um, I do now. Um, but he's smart. And he's a, he's a great shaper, and he made me, you know, he would ask me questions that I couldn't answer about boards, like, oh, you want concave, and in, in, you want this, or you want that, and he'd, he'd, I'd say, I want this or that, because I saw it on some dumb old 60s board, and he'd be like, why? And I'd be like, ah, uh, because I saw, you know, and he'd be like, that's not good enough. To, you tell me why, and I'll shape it for you and so he challenged me to figure shit out you know and and once I started sort of because I I don't think he really liked shaping some of the boards I would ask for he has a very specific kind of design theory but I, and I was a little bit all over the place and experimental but once he kind of we developed a rhythm he started building me some incredible boards that to this day I I still 
all the stuff I build, there's still little pieces of that in there, mm. little little bits of, of that. Bob, Bob should be one of the most famous shapers on earth. You know, he's 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 extremely gifted and very very ahead of his time. And he was very prominent in the '90s. I think when there was the Mavericks, a lot of guys riding the Mavericks guns, yeah. but a lot of shortboarders riding his boards as well that were in the magazines. Yeah. I don't think the rest of the world understands today how prolific he still is. Mm -hmm. Like if you go to Santa Cruz, he's everywhere. Mm -hmm. His boards are everywhere. He's building everything. He builds pointy thrusters. He builds EPS. He builds poly. He builds stand-up paddle boards. He builds guns, everything. And I feel like beyond that, he plays a fatherly role to so much of that community not only surfers, but a lot of the shapers that have come through there as well. So yeah, he's prolific still to this day and still super energetic, super tapped in. Yeah, man. So yeah, he does, he does great things. He's so, such a great shaper, man. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, if he did, if he did, like he could be a Rusty or a, yeah, for sure. Or Al Merrick or something. If he would have had somebody, come in and and help him run his business or something like that you know i think i think he's just so gifted at his art and he's so switched on mentally and intelligent as far as um just psychology is concerned but i i I don't think that he was ever the best businessman right granted he's had a business going up there his whole life but i think he could have been elevated to a, a massive totally which is a totally different mindset it and is, unique it skill is, set. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you kind of who your influence, early influences are with board building, but he's got to be one of them, obviously. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first sponsor I had was uh, Israel Paskowitz. Okay. And so I was uh, Daryl Butzko, just some guys down here, Rick Rock. Like I love the whole San Clemente thing when I was super young. Um, all the, just that scene was the best for me but then it was bob um i always a big fan of stretch and uh you know randy french uh doug howe just all the santa cruz guys mark gullen um he he's to shape for pearson but when i was a kid a lot of a lot of us uh were able to get boards from him adam rapogel rode for him um, yeah, man, I, there's just so much rad stuff going on up there. And I felt, always felt like Santa Cruz is what kind of kicked me into a spot where I was open to different technologies because Randy French at C trend was building like amazing epoxy shit. Stretch was building hand building epoxy boards before anybody you know, was doing epoxy shortboards. I mean, I, I was getting them from stretch, you know, when I was a kid. And they were, I was just down. I was I was just hyped to try different shit. Yeah. And it was very accepted up there. Um, so when and why did you leave Santa Cruz? I originally left Santa Cruz because um, I just knew, I always knew that you can be... Santa Cruz is one of those places where you could be the best guy and it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? It's 
it's like, what are you going to do? Like, get a free drink at fucking, you know, the harbor at the crow's nest? Like, what what's the future? You're going to work at NHS for Novak or be a rep for O'Neill? Or what's the, what's the, what is it? You know, so I knew, especially in longboarding, I got to get out of there. And prove myself at Malibu, prove myself, just surf around. I wanted, I don't want to be the best guy in Santa Cruz. I wanted to be, like, the best guy for at doing what I do, you know? So I knew I had to leave. So I left. Um, I became kind of pretty good friends with Alex Nost, and for whatever reason, I was, I signed with, uh, I signed with uh, Ruka uh, when Thomas Campbell released, um, the sprout and i i was getting paid so i was like oh i'm gonna move down south like this is it you know and so i moved in with nost in costa mesa it was me nost and jared mel my uh our friend ryan cottrell um a few people kind of circulated through that house but that was it okay were you building boards at all or i i mean i was i was still getting boards from arrow but I was starting to work with Robbie Kegel yeah. a little bit, who's fucking incredible. Such a character. Work, what do you mean by work with? Just getting boards getting from boards, him? But or? like kind of interjecting. Like it's, it's funny, we built a board called the Stiletto together and we did kind of an art show. Um, I had shifted, I shifted pretty quickly from Ruka to Paul Frank um, because of Thomas Campbell's advice and they were gonna they were gonna help sponsor a second movie but anyway we did a collaboration board that had edge in the tail it was very advanced for a log and i still think that that's like one of the best boards ever really is he still making it i think he would make people them but he doesn't like okay. it's not like a model that he Got makes it. but anyway yeah and uh yeah so i was i was down there and that that's kind of I remember the first few months of being there, partying with Nost and those guys who are like much younger than me, and feeling like, dude, this I'm gonna, this is so gnarly. Like I can't hang with these, these guys are partying super hard. And then it blows out at eleven, which it doesn't in Santa Cruz. So, those guys are like still drunk, surfing blackies at seven a.m. Right. And I'm not getting I'm not getting down there till it's already blown out. Yeah. And so you gotta hand it to Nose, man. He's 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 an animal. <laughs> and and uh I remember surfing with those guys and I was so I felt so I, I saw what was happening at the time. It was Nost and Kegel were making boards together. Nost had just left Dano. And what they were doing and how they were surfing, it just didn't exist. It hadn't been done. What I was watching happen. And I knew. I had, ne I had never felt so outdated. Oh, wow. I was like, dude, this is, I know this is it. There's only three people on the planet. Alex Nost, Robbie Kegel, Cody Simpkins surfing this certain way which is the way that every longboarder hipster kid surfs today. It was the birth of that, and I watched it happen. And I know why they were doing it. 
But a lot of it comes from Cody Simpkins, who's a bit older than, he's like more, maybe a couple years younger than me. He doesn't really surf anymore, but I watched it and I was like, fuck, I gotta, I'm going to have to reinvent myself. And I think that kind of spurred a little bit more of my darkness. Mm. Just, it kind of aided me. Like It was ego. Yeah, fuck, man, my ego was out of control, you know, and... and in a in a in an unhealthy way for myself, um, but anyway, yeah, it 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 kind of just kept pushing me down. But I had I had I love Al like a little brother and Jared and those guys. I mean, we have such an amazing bond. And um, but anyway, yeah. So, what was your career tra- trajectory or even path or options at that point? Was was it working with Thomas and making films or was it no, it's competitive? Funny. Yeah, no, I, 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 I ended up getting, I was riding for uh, Robbie, getting boards from him at that point in wetsuits. And then Robbie's distributor in Japan, I kind of got close with, Toshi Tanaka. And Toshi one day was like, CJ, if you started your own brand, I could sell you know, like 12 boards a month in Japan. Which to me, at the time, was worth exploring financially. So I, I did. I, I uh, teamed up with a guy down here. And I actually moved into a warehouse like 200 yards from here. Okay. Um, and yeah, started making boards. And that was like the first time. Were, uh, were they labeled CJ Nelson Designs? They were labeled City Fog. Okay. It was like a little, just a little board brand that I started. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. The boards were good. We got them to Japan. It, it was okay. It wasn't anything that spectacular. Were you hand shaping and who's laminating? I wasn't shaping. Uh, my friend was shaping. It's Steve Boyson. Yeah. And then I was doing lamination with a few guys. I was doing like, just like all sorts of colors, like abstracts. Okay. That's like when abstracts were kind of a thing. But you learned lamination. Yeah. Just, I lived in the factory, you know, like literally it, I'm surprised. I mean, yeah, I lived there. It was okay. gnarly. In terms of inhaling fumes and stuff? Just, yeah, dude. Just like as bad as it could be and drinking every day and smoking and just not surfing and just just the trains going like downhill, but there's a little money coming in, so. Right, which probably only exacerbates the situation, right? Yeah, I mean, dude, not much money. But. Right. Waterwaystravel.com is your one-stop surf travel concierge. Since 1994, Waterways has been responsible for some of the most famous magazine photo trips that you and I fawned over in the heyday of surfer and surfing magazines. Sean Murphy and his crew have spent decades not only exploring some of the best waves around the planet, I guess anybody could do that, but more importantly, they've spent that time cultivating relationships with hotel owners, restaurant owners, drivers, boatmen, photographers, and they are in contact with that network of partners constantly throughout the year. 
all of this is to ensure that you score waves on your next trip without having to expend any effort on all of that tedious travel minutia. So it's a pretty incredible program. They have proven their salt for nearly 30 years as the surf industry's trusted travel source. So go to waterwaystravel.com to see their wide-ranging location offerings for nearly any budget or level of luxury. Waterwaystravel.com. Enjoy. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. When does you haven't talked much about competition yet at this phase in your life? I'm uh, competing the whole time. You are okay. I just just know, not I, not surfing much, but still competing and winning, winning yeah. a lot. Gotcha. Um, how much 
did contests matter to a longboard's longboarder's pro surf career at that point? I don't know if they've ever really. I mean, because it doesn't they, matter now. They kind of matter, but I think longboard contests in general are just so fucking controversial. Yeah. You know, the only, I did like the coalition stuff, which to this day I still think is like the best thing going. Um, and then I did all the scholastic stuff. And then I did pro events from time to time. But it just didn't really define me um, as much as like putting out good edits and like filming with the right people. And, you know, if you were chosen to be a part of anything Thomas Campbell did, like that was culture shifting stuff you know mm -hmm. and so i was in that and um yeah i don't know i i did compete and i did win a lot but i never cared is there a right way to design longboard competition for it to work a lot of people have tried Let's, i could talk to you for like 10 hours about that let's start we don't have to go 10 but at least give me an overview I mean, just answer that one question. Is there a right way to do it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Best case scenario would have been, the, like, the way it started when it when the resurgence came and Nat Young and Donald and Nueva and fucking all the Dale Dobson and all, you know, the best guys. We're like, oh, let's have a barbecue and have a longboard contest, right? That was the essence of what it should should be. But boards had gotten light. You know, they, they were shortboarder, shortboarding. So when they rebuilt the longboards that they had kind of left off on, which they did, they built them, but they built them light, you know, because oh, why? No, nobody who grew up riding a fucking 40-pound log in the 60s would ride that. There's not one of those guys that would ride that now. You know what I mean? They would modernize it. Yeah. So they did. And then, um, but best case scenario is that would have stuck. And Nat Young and Nueva and those dudes, like Lance Carson, like our gods would have founded a world longboard tour and pump their DNA into it, the judging criteria, the whole fucking thing, and that's what we'd still be doing today. That would have been, that's basically what shortboarding got. Yeah. To a certain extent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's you know, criticisms we, there too, we, we, Those guys never get, they, they had fun at their barbecue longboard contest, but they're ah, fuck this, you know, at some right. point. And so, because... We have to do something with longboarding. The keys to the longboard world were handed over to shortboard guys. Right, right. There's the, that's the beginning of the disconnect, you know, and then their, their judges, their criteria, which just whittled our boards down to nine-foot high-performance shortboards, you know, and then how do you recover from that? You know, because now you're globally, you know, people are riding that in Hawaii, they're riding that in Brazil, they're riding, and, and in California, we're riding that, but we're also riding this. And then, you know, what does longboarding really look like? You know, long, what should it look like? 
you know, what, where's the, what, if you're going to do that, why not just write a short, short board, right? Like in the, well, I guess it is all very subjective and yeah, what does longboarding look like? Everybody has a different opinion on that, but I think we could start with a common denominator of what are the waves? What's the right board? What's the right equipment for the waves on this given day? Mm -hmm. And anything that the two plus one rockered out high performance longboard is doing, you could probably do better on a shorter board. 100%. So that's the argument against that, right? 100%. So, but you said Nat and those guys, none of them would ride a 40 pound log from the sixties today. They'd modernize it. So where is the common, is it a 20 pound board today that they would be riding with edge no, and I the tail that, or where is the modernized version well, of the log thing? I have to say too, that you can ride a eight pound two plus one longboard beautifully if the guy can control himself and has a vision of what longboarding should look like and execute. You can execute that on anything, a long fit, a nine foot long fish. Okay. But I don't think that there's a one, there doesn't need to be a one board, one weight sort of solution. I think that Longboarding needs to look like longboarding, but it needs to be dynamic and it can't just remain. Like you can't, if you just ride the same board and that one, if you just ride Magic Sam today and you just keep doing that, longboarding will never evolve. Yeah. Because you can, Nat did it so good, nobody's done it better. Yeah. And th that day... I still don't think anybody's done it better. Hmm. It's so stagnant. So how, like, what are we just going to like have the, we're just going to continue to play professional basketball in Chuck Taylor's. Yeah. We can't, we have to evolve it. So it's more a matter of dignity, style, flow, like the essence of what longboarding should look like, but continue to like elevate the performance of that without turning it into like an air show eventually. Right. You know what I mean? So it's, it takes, I think something I've learned as I've gotten older, like the, the most important thing about good longboarding is the use of restraint. Well said. Dignity it tells everything. Up. Yeah. I think, what those guys nailed in the sixties that you're talking about at that pinnacle moment was, um, the style of boards, the style of waves, the style of surfing, it all kind of hit a Zenith there. And you're right. If it just stayed there, that would stagnate. So we need to find what that moment is now. Um, I think you're, you know, you're surfing that way to a certain degree with the boards that you're writing yeah. and designing and all that sort of stuff, or you certainly have been, um, modern design drawing off of the old but implementing modern things into it with uh construction that is a big part of that mm -hmm. and then writing that board the way that it's meant to be written or the way that it can best be written in that style of waves 100%. i think that is yeah and so there are a couple of common denominators like you said restraint dignity but still speed still nose writing's a factor turning is a fa maneuverability is a factor but it has to have the uh, common denominator yeah. that they had in the 60s, which was style was huge, obviously. Yep. Um, and it's, find, it's like positioning. Finding trim. Yep. 
in the antithesis of that, whenever the era was of the high performance longboard at its zenith, it lacked all of those common denominators that we're talking about, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, I, I don't know that we all need to agree. Like that is what we should all agree on. I don't know that we need to. The more I think about it though, and I could make this argument against shortboarding as well. Uh, we don't need competition for any of this. Competition almost flies in the face of any of this. Because when you're talking about doing those things, two people on two, a set comes in, guy on the first wave, girl on the second wave or whatever, could be ticking all those boxes and it's impossible to say that this he's better than she is or she's better than he is. If they're both doing it well, yeah, I can't tell you who's better at it. it I, give me more of both. You know what I mean? Well, so competition it's, almost it's hard. denigrates it. It does. Well, it, it does. That's why I quit competing is because I don't, I want to ride things that haven't been ridden. I want to ride them things the way that I want to ride them. You know what I mean? Um, but in longboard competition, you know, that, that involvement style of, of longboarding that Nat did in, in 66 and a lot of Australians were doing um, at the time. Those boards were built to really ride in the pocket. They don't nose ride if you're out of the, in front of it. So that the degree of difficulty is high. So I just feel like if you're beating sections and the waves breaking on you and you're on the nose and you're slashing in the pocket and you're just in the pocket doing your whole repertoire, that's the hardest, most committed form of, of longboarding. Like right now, you can go on Instagram and pull up a bunch of pro longboarders who are riding like nose ride specific boards and they're just like hanging 10, 15 feet in front of the white water the whole wave. And everybody's, all these fans and people who don't know any better are just applauding that. But that's truly like what you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> like you're a pro longboarder. Right. And you don't know. Like look at, you want to see some good fucking surfing. Look at Devin Howard. Look at Dane Peterson. You know, the, like the, the surfing that Harrison did in the, the last event was like, in my opinion, just like it was, it was the way it should be done. It was perfect. You know what I mean? What people don't understand, and I, there, there's, there's a guy, a, a blogger in longboarding, who like posted some pictures of a famous longboarder, and he, this this guy was getting like a a really long hang ten, you know. And he's like, who's the best nose rider in the world, you know? And this, this particular guy is kind of out in, on the shoulder and he's hanging 10 for a long time on a specific flip-tailed nose rider. And he's insinuating that this is the best nose rider ever. And so I, I got into like a messaging thing with him and I was like, I was like, dude, you could be sitting on the beach at Queens watching one person hang 10 the whole wave, 20 seconds, and another person hanging 10 two seconds a wave. The guy hanging 10 two seconds a wave might be the better nose rider depending on what board they're riding. It's that different. 
So it's, so for a judge to fucking score this, that judge better damn no, damn well know what he's looking at, which is extremely hard to find. Mm. I think right now we're closer than ever to having that. But the last 15 years have been a joke. Right. Closer to having that on the WSL's version of the Longboard Tour. Got it. Uh, but the argument for anybody listening would be, well, the guy who rode for 20 seconds picked the right board for those waves. But it's skill, you know, like the best. When you say the best, yeah. like I'm not saying the, mo- the most scored, you know, I think that there needs to be, because th- what, that, what that person on that nose rider is doing is sacrificing turning because a board that, that's built that way can't turn, where the kid that's doing it two seconds away is probably having a flatter tail rocker or more drivey vehicle that he can kind of, you know. Well, the other around. detail is the board that you just described, the flatter tail rocker, he could nose ride that in the critical section of the wave, which is where yeah. you should be nose riding it anyways. Mm-hmm. And that board, it you're, you're fooling the judges by doing it on the other board on a flat section of the wave. Yeah. Essentially. There was a couple heats in the WSL where, where people were getting some pretty crazy hang tens out of the pocket and the judges didn't go for it. Good. And I was like, some of it was sad to see because I know some of these ki- people from around the world that aren't switched on to, you know, the dynamics of traditional longboarding, they're scratching their heads like, how did I lose? Right? But they rightfully lost. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but, dude, I've got a 25-board quiver. I've got flip-tail nose riders. I got flat-tail this. I got no concave. I got. I ride everything, and yeah. I. that's why I don't want to compete because I don't want to waste another second figuring, you know, compromising to do anything. I just want to surf. Um, how do you make a living as a longboarder? How did you and how do you today? And is there a way to do it for other than five people? Probably not. Okay. Yeah. I mean, longboarding is just, you have better have like some crazy X factors, you know, like art, design, like, like Alex, like charisma, you know. When Nos came along, and I watched what he was doing, it was just brilliant. And he wasn't, he was just being himself, but he was d- doing art and doing music and just being this personality, you know, and that I think is, you, you know, you can, you can have that. And I think, you know, if you were a Brazilian, young Brazilian longboarder who's winning everything over there, maybe you, the government may help you out. I think in South America, Peru, you can, you, you, it's possible, right, for, for those people but if you're just a kid in a van surfing pipes every day, you know, trying to be a good hip, like good traditional longboarder that in your 20, I mean, it's just not going to happen. It's just um, so hard to make a dent in this. Is So there's no way to do it off prize money, obviously, right? No. So the only way to do it is off sponsorship. Yeah. Or, and there's a couple of brands who support it, right? Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. The kid at Pipes, if he has a huge Instagram account, 
That'll get him there, maybe. But that's not being a pro. That's being an influencer. Okay. You know, that's not being what we would call a pro surfer. Got it. But maybe it is. Maybe the world's changing, and maybe that is what pro surfing will look like. Yeah. I mean, Alex couldn't, Vans wouldn't, or whoever wouldn't pay Alex anything if he didn't also rip. You know what I mean? Like you have to have the talent as well. Yeah. So I would like to think that the influencers have talent also. <laughs> I mean, like when I think of the shortboard game, the guys with huge followings on vlogs or whatever, Jamie O'Brien, those guys are legit surfers as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wondered so. the other day, and I, I respect Jamie and, and, and what he's done is, is so, <laughs> he's incredible, right? And I was like watching this like, Halloween costumes sort right, of thing right, that he right. has to do. Which to me is like my own personal hell. I know. You know. And I'm just thinking like, I wonder if he's really, like if he has moments where he's like, fuck. At what point do you just have a falling down moment where you, you know, just can't smile for the camera one more fucking time? I mean, you either have that's one path and the bank is over that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you just choose to go right. You have to, but it's, you know, the sustainability of this influencer thing and like, you know, it's like, I hear you. Dude. It's so gnarly, right? It's, it's so, it's just crazy. I think for me personally, where that, where the falling down moment would be is not only having the, two videos a week that you have to do selfie mode and turn and face the camera. It's your audience. The value there is authenticity, right? Your audience wants that connection with you. They want to see what you're eating, what you're doing. Well, here's my wife, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now she needs to be on camera. Well, we want to know more about your relationship. Okay. Well come sit at dinner with us. Yeah. Like, and then here's my kid. Here's me changing my kid's diaper. Like yeah. that is where it would be a bridge too far. So for, Jamie or Ben Gravy or whoever it is, they're going to need to figure out how to service the audience while maintaining a personal life because you certainly, I've never seen anybody successfully integrate personal life with an audience. Yeah, dude. It's crazy. But that's what the audience wants. That's what they want. And they, and dude, they like, demand. Jamie is, and, and, and those guys are catering so much to this person who will never know Steve Coletta, right? But, like, right. like guys like me, guys like that, like, if Jamie's on one of his things, he goes and surfs some, like, weird wedge or something. Like, I'm, I'm interested in seeing some crazy shore pound, you know? But I just don't think that, like, he's nailing where surfing's going. Where, where it's because it... And ushering it in. Yeah, it's just like like nailing it. Well, for however many wave storms show up on the North Shore this winter, he's responsible for eight out of ten of them, I would argue. Yeah. Influencing them to show up and try to recreate what he's doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is kind of and that, But that crazy. whole like kind of here we are at this or that and here's my friend doing cartwheels in the fucking right. sand with like Oakley's on and... You know, we just, we're going to chug a monster. Like, that's really what, if you go to the beach, I mean, that's almost, that's, that's a good arguably point. what's kind of happening. That's a good point. You know, there is no, like, quiet guy 
who pulls up after paint, like pounding nails all day and pulls his board out and like, you know, that it's, there, it's, it's not so it's the nobility's gone. It's like a show. It's everything but the surfing. Um, you're entirely right. I think that guy still exists. I know maybe, those guys. Yeah. Maybe in central California, there's all sorts of places they do exist. But what I, what is troubling to me is that what everybody who doesn't surf with the rest of the world now sees as surfing is the chugging the Red Bull on the beach and the doing the cartwheels thing. That's the surfer now. Right. At a time it was Spicoli was the stereotype. Now it's this other frat boy type of thing. Exactly. And I shouldn't care, you know, that that is the stereotype. It, yeah. But there, there was also other moments where Jay Moriarty was the stereotype. You know, where other people around the world would be like, oh, these guys are freaking the badass athletes on the planet who are conquering the sea. Yeah. You know? And so it's it's a shame to see kind of the WSLification yeah. of It's uh, hard. It's it's hard, but I don't want to come across like I'm unappreciative or down on surf culture today because there's a lot of shit that sucks in the world surfing doesn't and whoever comes there to be a part of it should i just as human beings like whether you just you just have to respect just we all just need to respect each other more mm. just like not everybody wants to be loud and bright some people want to be quiet and those the quiet guy needs to respect the loud and bright guy and the loud and bright guy needs to respect the quiet guy we all need to use our turn signals when we drive our cars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And we need to be appreciative of the moment. And I am. And every day I surf, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I should have asked earlier, but I just referenced Jay Moriarty and you yeah. did earlier. Can you just tell me about your relationship with Jay and who he was in your world? He was, he was a great, great young man. And, um, you know, me and my dad took him down to Cardiff. We took him on his first surf trip and uh, let him borrow a longboard. And he was he was shortboarding. He was trying to kind of be a, a competitive shortboarder. But he was young. I think I was like maybe 15. Jay would have been maybe like, you know, younger than me. But we camped at Cardiff, had a great time. He rode a longboard, kind of fell in love with it. Um, but he was, you know, he he was he was just a reliable, good, no bullshit, fucking stand up guy at a really young age. Not like me. <laughs> I was I was bullshit and not a stand up guy. Yeah, he was. But we would drink on the cliff all night sometimes together and talk or, you know, just surf a lot. And that's how it was up there, you know. Yeah. We were just, we were in the same neighborhood and, and um, just spent a lot of time together. I mean, everybody in that neighborhood at that time did, at Pleasure Point. Mm -hmm. And then when Jay started going up the coast, you know. And, and reached out to Frosty and was, was actually going through the process of becoming that, you know, he really changed a lot in a, 
he was dri- he it was it was it was wild you know just to watch him like find a focus yeah because he was he was he was kind of doing like some pro longboard stuff but I think he knew that that wasn't really his calling you know he wasn't winning every event he wasn't like the best nose rider he wasn't he was just solid like Todd Chesser you know yeah. what I'm saying and uh once he found Mavericks and a focus, he was training like an animal, and I didn't see him. He was gone. Oh, really? You know, he's gone. He was like, I'd see him every afternoon, like hammering across town on his bicycle, you know, like out of breath. And I was like, knew something was gonna happen. And it's funny the day the day that it the day it happened for Jay. Um, we meet. I don't know. Do you know Bob Barber? Yeah. So Bob, Bob, and me, and Jay, and there's a crew of longboards: Kevin Misk, Terry Sims, you know, Matt Tanner. There's a there's a kind of crew of us that were that were shooting with Bob a lot, you know, uh, for longboard publications, and we would go to this place that Bob uh, Barber called the studio. Anyway, you're kind of like like if he takes you there, you were like sworn in blood. Never, you could never go there with another photographer. And if you were going to do it, he wanted you to call him and give him first dibs. Like he would give you no reason to ever go there with another photographer ever. And you're sworn to secrecy. So I'm not going to say where it is. Yeah, of course. But (laughs) I'm still respecting that promise to you, Bob. But I was going to go down um, with him there and go shoot. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'll call you in the morning. I'm going to come grab you, and we'll go. And, like, he ghosted me. And I was like, man, like, fuck, I hope he's okay, you know? And uh, he's not that type of guy. That never happens. I thought he was, like, dead, you know? And uh, pre-cell phone. And I was at on my my house on the west side of Santa Cruz, and... uh, the phone rings, and it was Barber. And he goes, CJ, I'm so sorry I didn't come, but you will not believe what your friend did this morning. And it was the day that Jay took the wipeout that made the cover, his first day. And he's like, Barber was like, I got the photo, and it's the heaviest thing anybody's ever seen and I was like what the fuck are you talking about like I couldn't even envision what it, he was talking about and yeah he uh and it was on film so he hadn't even seen the photo yet probably he knew yeah because he got it and he was like your buddy's lucky to be alive like he was emotional it was like it was a it was a fucking heavy moment a heavy heavy morning in Santa Cruz because it was like the phones were going off and everybody knew what had happened to Jay and he survived and it was like crazy, you know? And so I didn't, obviously I wasn't upset, you know, cause whatever, but I remember going over to the point and hanging out and everybody was talking about it. And I remember seeing Jay and giving him a hug and he was like, Jay had this, this giggle, you know, that he just, like an un, almost an uncomfortable giggle, but like with the, with a twinkle in his eye, you know. And I was like, "Damn, dude!" And he 
he's like, he's like, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty crazy, you know. And, um, but yeah, obviously when that came out, I, I saw it and I was like, fuck, my boy's on to something. Do you know how gnarly was the beating on that wipeout? Not gnarly. It's weird, right? How that happens? Kind of like not gnarly, but on another wave that day, I guess it, he got he got he got beat. Okay. But yeah, man, uh, Jay was the most special guy. I I I I think about him all the time, and when especially the last few years when I've been running and stuff, and just like leaning into suffering because I think it's important. I think that like when you, when you're suffering for something that you love, there's just like nothing more beautiful. Mm. And it, it, when you're doing the thing that you, you know, when I go surfing now, the investment that I just made for the, however, like what I did the day before and like the, what I did that, morning or whatever and i'm surfing it's just with a different different perspective because i'm paying Mm -hmm. and like planning out your suffering like that is something that i think more people should do it i agree with you and i feel like um it prepares you for other types of suffering if you opt in and you kind of commit to that thing you're now equipped to handle other things, challenges that come your way. They don't seem as like as big of a challenge if you opted in earlier and you persevered it, you know, you're kind of taking control of what's to come next. Whereas otherwise you're just at the mercy of whatever comes next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you about as it related to you're talking about addiction and not surfing anymore throughout a lot of that. Um, how did you find your way back to surfing and how did that affect your life and your recovery? Dude, it was wild. I mean, when I, when I got sober, I was on a really crazy bender. It was in the middle of winter. I mean, when I say bender, like five days of hard drinking um, all night, all day, all night, all day, like sleeping a little bit, waking up, going to the store, getting beer, like just in pleasure point, you're just walking around, getting wasted. And I, you could sleep outside. It was, it's just, it's too safe, right? So I'm doing that. And I started feeling really shitty. I mean, there was times when I drank myself to a point where I couldn't speak. Like I couldn't form even like, the mechanics of your the mouth. The mechanics just, yeah. were, done, were not there. But my brain, for whatever reason, I was always pretty smart. Like I didn't, I was together mentally, but I just would lose some motor skills. But anyway, I was in one of those moments and I like, it was three o'clock in the morning and I was, I was so done. And there's this field kind of over by the Shadowbrook, by Capitola Road, and on the east side of Santa Cruz, there's this field, and I was, like, out there. I was, like, crying. I'd thrown up. And I felt like I was going to die, you know? And I, like, got on my hands and knees, and I, like, screamed at the sky, praying to God to save my life. And 
I'd never said a prayer before, and I'm not like a bit. I'm not saying like we can exist on that, or I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying this is what happened. I said like a really powerful, crazy prayer, like to the best of my ability, because it was all I could do, and within a few days, I I found the strength to get sober, mm. and so I um. The day, the morning I, I walked home from the bar, I called a friend and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm sick. And I was sick. I was like, I was sick. And uh, I was like, I'm going to, I'm done. You know, I, I need you to, I'm going to lock my gate. Because my house was a party house. People come over. I was going to lock myself in my house and like see what happens. And so a friend of mine brought me food. My roommate, Bob, would, would brought me a couple things and I, I, I did it, you know, in hindsight, I should have gone to the hospital. I don't think what mm. I did was actually safe. I think me- medically I, I made a, a very risky decision, but I made it. And then <clears throat> I was so ashamed and just so, just so fucking done. I would, I couldn't. The, the amount of guilt and the amount of shit like that was flooding back into my brain after a couple weeks and a month, you know, where I'm like staying home, but I'm like getting sober and I'm like realizing who I am, like the pe- where the pieces are. And I might add at this time, my father had passed, which really sent me down a bad path. I was losing my father's home that he had passed away and he owed like $500,000 on. I don't have a job. I'm I'm like, literally, I had like the money that I was getting from my roommate. I was like buying a tent, like fixing up a bicycle, getting sleeping bags because I was going to be homeless. And so I was like in the back of my brain preparing for that. Because I I was incapable of taking care of myself, so I was just going to be homeless, and I I knew where I was going to go into this the the mount this mountainy area kind of in in SoCal, and so all of this is like this is what my thought process at the time. So there's no way I'm going to like I had sold my surfboards. I don't I think I had like a wetsuit, you know it was. It was a fucking heavy bottom, you know? And so I I found, I was on Craig's. I, my roommate had paid me again for m- another month. And I'm waiting to literally be kicked out of this house any day. And um, my roommate paid me and I went on Craigslist and I found one of my boards. I found a CJ Nelson model in San Jose, a surf tech. And I was like, called the guy. I'm like, hey, um, is that thing still for sale? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's for sale. And I think he wanted like 300 bucks for it. And so I, I, I drove over there. And he didn't even know who I was. I, didn't tell I was going to ask. And so I bought it. And I was so ashamed of myself. I like took it in my backyard and sanded my name off of it and spray painted wow. it. You know what I mean? And, and. I was just didn't <clears throat> didn't really I shouldn't want to be 
that at the time. And so, but I had like lost some weight already and I was kind of feeling better than I had, at least physically, not, me- not so much mentally, but physically I was feeling pretty good. And so I, uh, I started surfing just out at, out at 38th Avenue. It was, it's like around May, I think when I, when I got the board and it was going into summer. So I, I just started like in the mornings walking down there before people were up and like putting my board on this one little, like right under Jack O'Neill's house, they had just built a seawall and there was this little ledge and I put my board there and I just stayed there all day, every day sitting in the sun, watching the ocean, and surfing a few times. And I, like, hadn't, I hadn't lost anything. Oh, really? Yeah, I pretty much had got it. I, I had it still. I, I, I was at least as good as I was when I started, shit started getting bad. And so a couple guys, like... Uh, Dave Brown, a couple of photographers that would be walking by would snap a photo and send it to me on Facebook, you know, and I would, I started kind of going, okay, like, and then um, <laughs> putting a couple of them out there. Uh, and then, yeah, that's when things started to, to, to snowball. Like, an old friend of mine that I hadn't seen in a really long time, Ian Chisholm from Australia, who, who owns South Coast Surfboards Australia, he called me and was like, CJ, dude, are you surfing? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I can't believe you're surfing again. He's like, mate, I've always wanted to build you boards. You know, like, will you come to Australia? I was like, are you fucking kidding? Like, I'm about to go ride my bike into the hills and be homeless, you know? And I, like, that, when he offered me that to pay for me to come to Australia and ride his boards and give me a fucking opportunity to be, to get a free surfboard, you know? It was, like, the single most euphoric moment of my life until that point. Mm. Like I had a, the, the door was like not totally closed. There was like a little light coming in. And so that was it. You know, I went over there. He had built me like seven boards and it was just so good to be like doing what I love and clear headed, you know? And he, he carried Axe wetsuits, and he's like, oh, do you have wetsuits? And I'm like, no, dude, I don't. He's like, let me call Axe, you know? And then Axe was down. Hmm. CJ Nelson, you know, like, we'll, we want to help you. So I got wetsuits. And it just, like, honestly started ticking away. And then the article, you know, Foam Cemetery, my dear friend Justin Bevan wanted to do an article on my trip and my sobriety. And, then, you know, like I, I, I was a little scared because I knew the more people that kind of knew, the more accountable I had to be. And, like, if I give you my word, and, I, like, 
in the past, I had given people my word and let them down. And I knew that that's not an option because that's the one thing that I would, well, there's multiple things, but that's one of the things that really pissed me off about who I was. And so when people were saying, oh, we want to do an article, I'm like, okay, you know, that's got to happen. And so I just started letting it out and rebuilding uh, my surfing career from a mindful place. Um, when did you recognize the value of uh, sharing that story? I saw it around. I mean, I, I saw it around me. I saw like one of my best friends who helped me get sober, got sober right pretty much after me. Um, and in, you know, my mom got sober. Oh, really? Right after me. Wow. Because um, of you? Just because she was sick and tired of it. But yeah, a little bit. Um, but I think that I was so scared to face things and face life straight. And then once I did it and I realized how there was nothing to be scared of and how much easier things were mm. when you kind of remove your hiding places. Um, I just felt like I know too many people that are in my past situation to not at least show them that it's possible because literally anybody who knows knew me then knows that if I could do it, they could do it because I was fucked up. There's nobody who could look at me and not think that. So I knew, you know, like I've always been the type of guy who's like, oh, dude, I got a sponsor. Like, let me see if I can get you sponsored too, you know? Like I just, that's the way it is, you know? That's the, for whatever reason, I've, I've, I've been that way. And I was really that way when I got sober because it's the best thing ever. Um, the thing that I, you talked about, um, having the accountability once it's kind of public and you're sharing it. I think there's another part that I would worry about coming with that, which is there's a burden when everybody is now sharing their vulnerability with you. You're the sounding board. Yeah. They're going through something tough and they're in the throes of it and they reach out to you and they're like, Hey, here's what I'm going through. Help me. It, do you feel a weight of the responsibility well, of being I, that person now? This is the role that you play? A little bit, but being an addict, I mean, you know that everybody's accountable for themselves. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, can, only, I can only do so much. Um, I can only do so much. You know, you, you, everybody has to really be ready to, to make a change. Um, I don't, I don't really, I don't really feel like it's a burden to me. I, I feel more like it's my life's purpose awesome. at this point. Good. And I'm actually, I have a dear friend in Santa Cruz, Mark Campbell, and we are starting a nonprofit uh, and going to start doing camps. We're going to do three next year for men 
in crisis who want to come hang out and go surfing and talk about health and get their heads right. And um, it's been super valuable to me to be able to give back and correct some wrongs. Is, yeah. is there a name? It's going to be called Loose Change. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'll I'll make an announcement when we're we're ready and stuff. But yeah, I think I think that you know society, you know, expects a lot of men, and I think that men go through shit. And I think, and I I personally have witnessed by being sober and and reaching out to people and putting myself out there. There's a lot of guys that, you know, like, they don't have anywhere to turn to. Like, it's hard for a man to ask another man, like, hey, can, you know, how'd you do that? You know, can you help me? You know, can, you know, they, most men will have a million people in their lives, but is who's there for them? Yeah. Like, what brother of theirs or friend is going to grab them and be like, hey, buddy, you're fucking up. Like, let, let me, like, let's talk about it, you know? So being that is the th single thing I care most about. What's your current relationship like with surfing? I'm in love, man. It's like better, better today than ever. How often are you surfing? How much time are you spending? I mean, right at the, right at the moment, business-wise, things have been we're in a it's been very successful and, and amazing to to be a part of that and then there's been some things that have really taken me away from surfing um but i'm so grateful you know i was i was gonna be homeless you know like i love what i'm doing um i'm still surfing i can surf anytime i want as much as possible and i I, I do spend a few days a week at the beach all day. Oh, really? And I surf. Good for you. You know, I wear my little fitness tracker just to, because I, I run so much. And, you know, an average day, I'll paddle like maybe like 13 miles. Wow. Of an average day of longboard surfing. Amazing. Three, three sessions. That's insane. So I do that like three three days a week are you trying to put the mileage on or no, is that just from surfing that's just having fun surfing crazy dude and so i surf a lot but i could surf more and uh currently i'm kind of um bringing more people into the business to help alleviate and some more creatives like you know in business I, i've learned so much that i need other opinions i need other like i'm not I don't rule with an iron fist. I want, I don't know everything, you know? So from an artistic perspective, I love seeing art that I would never have done or designs I would never come up with because I, it's, that's just so valuable to me to, to have that and, and embrace that stuff. I have what, a great crew. What is your business? I'm a designer. I'm a designer as well. What do you design? I design surfboards, um, clothes, art, shoes, you know, I'm just, I have my hands in a lot of different stuff, skateboards, sunglasses. I just design shit and uh, yeah. 
uh, for other brands or for yourself? Other brands, my brands. So your brands are CJ Nelson Designs? Yep, Crime. I'm a part owner of Crime. What's Crime? Crime is a just a brand that that it's like a soft top brand, but we do apparel and skate. We've kind of got it was a brand that we wanted to create to bring um, some of my art art friends into the fold. Like I'm still a big lover of graffiti culture, and I have a lot of friends that um, and people I respect in that that I I share crime with and. You know we're we're going to be doing apparel, and uh, we're launching that, which is amazing. Um, my dear friend James Banuelos is kind of helping me out with that a little bit. He he's, he comes from the streetwear industry, um, but yeah, my boy John uh, Instagram candle is every day's rad. He's like the he he's he's been with crime since the beginning. He comes from the skate industries, worked for Thebo at Deluxe and NHS, and um, he's just incredible. He's got ama- amazing relationships that, that, that we've used for crime. My partner, Yu Sumitomo, is uh, the best board builder I've ever worked with, and his team of builders and his family is ridiculous he's the guy who came up with the thunderbolt technology um yeah my friend sea monster my little team rider he's doing social media for us and kevin kosha uh, whom i've loved and respected for many many years is is now involved with our thing we have retail modern beach supply up in carlsbad um, flying diamond fin company another one that I run with uh, my partner Mark Nelson who's not my father just <laughs> randomly but a uh, great man who's probably taught me more about business and like the finest man I've ever known mm. um, just a father figure amazing human being that uh, I re- we, we do flying diamonds together and that's great I mean we have Taylor Jensen, you know, uh, Ben Skinner, Kevin Scavarna, Sea Monster, Kai Salas, his girls, Khalees and Kiani, um, and uh, Connie Stewart. We've got an amazing crew. Neil Purchase Jr. is coming on. Wow. Um, just so amazing to have fins designed, truly designed by the riders. Like, no, without without outside opinion, like give me a template, tell me the flex you like, tell you know like a hundred percent design authority, and what they're coming up with and and what we're doing with that is super exciting. You know, I was I was I I helped start Captain Finn with Mitch, and so having I've always been interested in fins, and that comes from working with Bob Pearson and 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 really being schooled in in the importance of board relationship mm-hmm. so flying diamonds has just been such a great experience and that's growing and then yeah we just recently opened modern beach supply up in carlsbad to just kind of have a place to sort of showcase everything together yeah 
But uh, it's a fucking miracle. <laughs> it's a literally a fucking miracle. And they, I re- they happen. I, I remember watching like back when I was hanging in SF, and I remember watching like Keith Huffnagel start Huff and Benny Gold start his clothing brand. And I remember FTC, like, I remember, I just remember watching, like, skaters be smart. Mm. And always thinking, like, fuck. Like, someday, you know, like, that's, like, I just thought it was, that was it. That was, that was the dream. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's a miracle because I'm not doing it on a, any scale like like they are currently but it's it's happening yeah you know and it's funny enough i know keith is past and keith huffnagel is a, a major influence in my life back when i was younger but we are doing we are going to be doing a crime collab with huff this year no way which is so beautiful congrats yeah doing just doing a bunch of amazing stuff with crime and i'm relaunching CJ Nelson Designs, currently redoing the website, really trying to get all the models I've worked on throughout my life all in one place. Some have sort of been left behind, and I really there's there's people that ask me about them all the time. So I want to like I just really want to do my life's offering um, as far as surfboards are concerned in one spot. So even for reference sake, whether people buy them or not, but just to just to log all of this and have it presented properly. So we've been working on that. And it's just incredible. It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, Busy. And I'm kind of the boss of, I, not a boss or whatever, but I, I, I'm a people, I help manage the crew. You know what I mean? But keep the relationships tight and, you know, communication, like brotherhood and, opinions and you know the overseeing a bunch of people is something that i'm learning to how to do but i think i have a gift good because that's a unique skill set too it but is. delegation it's been, it's been hard delegation super hard to give up control with certain things but it it's is. the key to growth it's, it's the, the only way to grow yeah we're, we're doing great good doing super good uh final question for everybody is what was the last surfboard that you rode the last surfboard I rode was that tan board right there with the wax on it. And it's called the Livingston. And it's kind of an evolved version of what Nat Young rode in 66. In what way? What's modernized about it? Similar in template, just a little wider, a little more rocker, concave, a little bit of edge in the tail, a little bit lighter, a little bit better fin placement. What's the length? 9.8. 9.8 single fin. 9.8 single fin log. Yeah. Epic. I I wouldn't really call it a log. Yeah. Um, How do people get a hold of you? People can get a hold of me through my website, DM me on Instagram. Um, Yeah. I mean, especially DM me on Instagram. Okay. It's an easy way. Cool. Right on. Well, thanks for being so uh, candid and sharing so much. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. It's 
thrilled to have you. Nelson, everybody. I've linked to all of uh, CJ's websites, social media, all that stuff on surfsplendorpodcast.com. We've also got this conversation in full length and in smaller portions on YouTube and also on Instagram at surfsplendor. So I find that people, um, it's hard for people to share a podcast. They don't know how to find the link to share it on an app and then send that, text it to a friend, whatever. It's a hassle. So if this conversation was impactful for you, I'd encourage you to share it on social media. That seems to be the easiest. You just have a share button, obviously. And we've recently seen the impact of social sharing with one Brad Gerlach clip that we posted. Um, it's been viewed over a million times on Instagram and that's really opened my eyes to how many people beyond our normal network might appreciate these conversations. So please share this chat with CJ Nelson with a friend who you think might enjoy it. That really helps our show grow organically. And then if you want to help support our work for five bucks a month, we would really put that money to good use. We are listeners supported, and as a thank you, we do surfboard giveaways. So this month, we're giving away a Fireball Fish. We're going to pick a winner on December 1st. Dennis Jarvis of Spider Surfboards will actually be on Surf Splendor here to discuss that board design. He will also build a custom Fireball for the winner of this giveaway. So if you're a supporter in any capacity in the month of November, you will be entered to win this board. So if you're already set up, great, you're entered. If you want to get entered, go ahead and get that set up before uh, December 1st, Pacific Standard Time. And it's as simple as that. You'll be entered to win. It's five bucks a month. You can cancel at any time. And then um, we'll select the winner randomly, and Dennis will be in touch with you to build the custom. So thank you to everyone who supports. It is very meaningful. We appreciate it. It allows us to do this work. And uh, surfsplendorpodcast.com is where you can do that. It's also where you can see everything that I discussed with CJ Nelson. And you can find all of the other shows that we produce and distribute. Spit with Scott Bass, The Grit with Chess Smith, Hardcore Surf History, Surf Stories by the Florida Surf Film Festival. Donald Brink has a show called Swell With My Soul. Scott Bass also has an interview show called The Boardroom. So lots of podcasts pumped out weekly and uh speaking of weekly we'll be back here in one week on surf splendor so until then my name is david scales for surf splendor and uh amidst all the busyness that you have going on in your life this is kind of my constant reminder just spend a little bit of time get back into the ocean share some waves and as always shred on
And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.